you would please join me in prayer. Lord, we submit ourselves to you. Lord, every time we approach your word, we should be humble, recognizing that this is your word to us, that your Holy Spirit works through it and penetrates to the deepest part of our hearts. We pray, Lord, that as we study your word now, as we hear it, we pray, Lord, that you would transform us, that you would work in us, and that, Lord, we would truly be revealed to be your people, people that truly seek you. So, Lord, come. We ask that this accomplished through the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, last week, we looked at Jesus' ministry to the Gentiles in Matthew chapter 15. If you'll remember from that study, I brought out three observations from it. Jesus was concerned about the whole person, both body and soul. And the second thing that we brought out was Jesus modeled compassion for the lost. And the third thing was that Jesus welcomed the Gentile, the people that were least like him. Now, I was a little taken aback afterwards when so many remarked that after hearing the sermon, how much it affected them. There, there was a, a realization that even as believers in Christ, having their own souls transformed by the power of the gospel, that they allowed their hearts to be hardened towards sinners. And these comments displayed a desire not only to cultivate compassion, but to do something about those who are suffering and the lost. And I commend you for having those feelings. I came to my own realization that maybe I haven't done a very good job of reminding you of our mission to, to cast before you the vision of reaching the nations constantly, to always have that before us, always reminding you that there are 3.27 billion people in the world that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. 3.27 to 7 billion, 42% of the people groups in the world, people that have their own distinct languages, their own ethnicity, 42% have never been reached with the gospel. These thoughts coincided with two events that also occurred this past week. The first of these was interaction with some of our missionaries within the span of these last 10 days. And within that time, both myself and our missions team heard reports from three of our international workers and one of our church planners. You got the privilege of hearing one of those last Sunday morning if you were present. Another of these reports was unexpected, completely out of the blue, as our missions team heard this past Tuesday night of the great need that is happening in West Asia right now. My heart has been broken as terrorists are taking control of that region of the world. I've had a mission-saturated week, and I confess it's had an effect on me. The other event that occurred last weekend was that we lost our dear brother, Ron Vaughn. And it caused me to reflect on how many relatives and friends have recently entered the sleep of death, and it's become a stark reminder of how fragile life is, how limited is our time upon this earth, and this also brought the thought of how many across the globe are dying without access to the gospel. It's brought me to tears on several occasions since. 
Burials all over the world are occurring, having been conducted with no gospel hope. No hope for the beloved departed, no hope to offer the family and friends because the good news of Jesus Christ has not been proclaimed in those places yet. People have died in their sins hoping that their slavish adherence and obedience to a religious system would somehow be good enough to stand before God. They never heard how Jesus has made restitution at the cross between sinful humanity and a holy God. And if they have faith in that, then, then that is sufficient to save their souls. But no one has told them. Not yet. Why? Believing in God's sovereignty, why over the 20 centuries of Christianity have we failed to get this all-important message out there? We're better about getting a vaccine out to the world than we are about getting the message that heals souls. I have some suspicions as to why, which, which I may share at the conclusion of today's message. But because of the culmination of all these events, I'm not ready merely to move on to the next verse in chapter 16 without spending a bit more time on reaching the nations. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus demonstrated compassion for those outside the nation of Israel, those who were not related to Abraham through the blood of the promised offspring. And we cannot emphasize enough this concern for all peoples. At the end of this gospel account, Matthew will conclude with those famous words of Jesus, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, I'm not sure when we'll get around to expositing those verses, perhaps next year. But our time on this earth is just too short not to emphasize this mission beforehand. So this morning, I want to look at how one of Jesus' early followers perceived these actions of our Lord towards Gentiles, towards those who were not Jews. And I can't think of a better example of the New Testament displaying this attitude than the Apostle Paul's words to the church meeting in Rome. If you will, turn back with me to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Now, because I'm picking this up at the end of the letter, I need to provide some context here. Otherwise, we're going to lose the impact of what's written. First, we need to remember the background of the author, Paul. And you can find his personal story in Acts chapter 8 and chapter 9, along with Galatians chapter 1. I'm going to let you review that on your own time. But, but prior to his conversion, Paul was quite possibly one of the most zealous Jews of the first century. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, meticulous to keep every letter of the law, especially laws that made one unclean, as we discussed in Matthew chapter 15. When he first encountered Christianity, he made it his mission to eradicate the followers of Jesus. He put them in prison, he incited riots, and he personally oversaw their executions. Even on the day that, that he was converted, he, he was on his way to persecute Christians that lived outside of Jerusalem. It wasn't enough just to persecute them in the city. He had to do it elsewhere. And it was on that occasion that the Lord Jesus appeared to him and revealed his sin to him of self-righteousness. And Paul clung to the hope of Christ by placing his faith in Jesus' atoning work at the cross and not within his own behavior. He was radically transformed from that moment on. And the irony that happens here is sweet. 
Not only did this zealous teacher of the law become Christianity's greatest proponent, but he became the Lord's chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles, those outside of Judaism. These would have been people who early in his life, Paul would have found utterly repulsive. Think about it. The previous self-righteous Paul would be eating with those who had pork sitting on their dinner table, mingling with pagans who had probably offered sacrifices to their idols in their homes that morning, engaging people who had partied at orgies the night before. These were behaviors that in his previous life he would have been mortified to be around. To a zealous Jew, Paul had no business associating with people like this. But God called Paul, this former Pharisee, to take his message of grace to the outsider. Then we need to consider the audience of this letter. That in itself is a miracle here. Paul was writing to a church made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers. People from a mixture of beliefs were now gathering to worship together on Sunday. They were now together the body of Christ. This church was located in the capital city of paganism where the emperor himself was worshipped as a god. At the time of the letter, Paul had, had never been to Rome, but he already was aware of just how divergent were the views of these new believers. These strongly held beliefs and opinions had the potential to bring incredible strife into the body of Christ. Bringing Gentile believers into the mix with Jewish Christians was like mixing oil and water together. That brings us to why Paul was writing this letter in the first place. The purpose was twofold. To promote their unity in the gospel and to promote the advancement of the gospel. To promote their unity in the gospel and to promote their advancement in the gospel. And you might recognize that is one of our points of emphasis here for our own congregation, to be unified in the gospel. Paul wants to make sure that it is the gospel that holds them together. He begins his letter describing the sinfulness of mankind, that each one of us, man or woman, chooses to ignore the creator God of the universe and worship the created things, whether that's an idol or our own flesh. And part of our punishment from God is that he allows us just to continue in our sinful passions without him. If that's what we want, without any regard from our creator, so be it. He'll let us live in it. All of us are guilty of this rebellion. But the question is asked in chapter 2, what about the Jews who had God's special revelation of the law? Are they not different? Paul states that no Jew has ever reached the righteous measure of the law. They are aware of it, but they have never obeyed it. They're actually in worse condition because they know what to do, but they fail to live it. So Paul concludes the matter in chapter 3. Every single human, with the exception of one, every single human being is completely guilty and deserving of God's wrath. We're all sinners. The problem is, is that we don't know God. If we ever came face to face to God, we would hit our knees, our faces to the floor, because he's that holy. He's that majestic. He is worthy of that kind of honor, perfect obedience before him. But the good news, 
which is the word gospel. The good news is that God has made provision for us through that one perfect man, the God-man Jesus Christ, who became the propitiation for our sin. And for those who believe in him, Jew or Gentile, he paid the sin debt that we owed to God, reconciling us to the Father. The implications of this means that there is only one means of salvation, only one, through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we all, Jew and Gentile alike, are saved by the same gospel. And between chapters 4 and 11, Paul explains how this has been God's plan all along, how this works for all of us who have faith. This is what unifies all believers. No matter what our background, we are unworthy sinners saved by the precious blood of Christ. And can it be? And can it be? What amazing love. That would die for me. And if God himself can overcome our ethnicities, our cultural backgrounds, our hang-ups, our sinful desires to, to live life for ourselves in order to magnify his son, then Christians should certainly overcome them as well by making the gospel the main thing. Our unity is in the sovereign majesty of Jesus who has redeemed us from sin and reconciled us to the Father. It is on the basis of this alone that we are saved. And in chapters 12 through 14, Paul instructs the Roman believers, Jew or Gentile, how the gospel should be made manifest among them to display to the world and to one another that Christ is the main thing. They're to use their spiritual gifts to build each other up. They are to love one another. They are to bear with one another, to put up with each other's eccentricities so that they can show that they are gospel-centric in their life. They're to avoid judging one another. And they are to be unified not only as they partake of the gospel with one another in the Roman church, they are to promote the advancement of the gospel throughout the world. And now we arrive at chapter 15 where Paul talks about this advancement of taking the gospel to the unreached. And with the time we have remaining, I want to demonstrate how Paul is following the example of Jesus in this and how it affected him personally. And there are four reasons here for advancing the gospel that are summed up, and I want to draw those out. And then I want to conclude with what we can do with eight practical applications. So there's four reasons to begin with here, and then eight applications that will follow. And I promise we'll get out on time. Don't worry. When you hear eight Make some people panic. We're going to get out on time. Lord willing. (laughs) Paul begins this initial part by explaining why he emphasizes this unity in the gospel and the promotion of the gospel. He gives us two reasons here. The example of Jesus, that's number one, and the directive from Scripture. The example from Jesus and the directive from Scripture. So before I read these words here, let me remind you of what we've seen Jesus do in Matthew's account. We need to keep in mind that Jesus, the Son of God, as Matthew keeps affirming, Jesus took on flesh and he entered into his sin-contaminated world in order to save his people. Then in Matthew chapter 15, beyond just the Jews, Jesus traveled to and interacted with those who were considered outside the nation of Israel. He granted the Canaanite woman's request to to free her daughter from demonic oppression based upon her faith. He entered into Gentile country on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee and healed the infirmed. He performed the same miracle of feeding the Gentile masses just like he did with the 5,000 plus Jews in Matthew chapter 14. 
All of these were actions that drew the criticism and the hatred of the self-righteous Pharisees. They would have viewed Jesus' behavior interacting with these people who were unclean as despicable. Keep that in mind as we read these words. Romans chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The reason Paul reaches out to the lost, despite the criticism, is that he is following the example of Jesus. Jesus was willing to go to the Gentiles just as Jesus was willing to go to the self-righteous Paul. So why shouldn't Paul do both as well? Jesus put others before himself. That's the first reason Paul encourages gospel advancement. The second reason is here in verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Why, Paul, do you promote the gospel? Paul would answer, because the Bible tells me so. And what does it tell him? He's going to expound on that in just a few verses later. But the Old Testament scriptures reveal that the Gentiles will also be received into the kingdom based on God's work. And it's interesting to note that Paul says he has hope through endurance. He must be patient. He must persevere in this task. This is also one of our points of emphasis at Providence, that our belief in the gospel is so strong, it causes us to persevere for its stake. And he says the scriptures provide encouragement. Why? Because through them we see that this is God's plan all along. And remember, biblical hope was not just wishful thinking. Biblical hope means we have sufficient reason to believe in the outcome. It is a surety it will come to pass. And because of this, Paul stops his thinking here just a moment to to offer a prayer for the Roman church. This isn't unusual for Paul in his letters. When he writes of something of such great magnitude, something that's so astounding, it will cause him to pause in order to offer either a brief prayer or a doxology, or sometimes both. Here Paul is inspired to offer a prayer of benediction. It's what he reveals here is reason number three. And picking up on what he has just wrote about endurance and encouragement, we see his resulting expectation, verse five, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This prayer is huge and one that we should be praying daily for ourselves and for one another. If there's nothing else that you get out of today's sermon, please let this be the takeaway. Paul prays for this unity among the divergent believers here in Rome. He is praying that the gospel be the main thing among them. He says, in accordance with Christ Jesus. Why? That together in this harmony, they become one voice glorifying God. And by welcoming one another in the gospel, that unity will glorify God. Because in doing so, you are proving that the gospel works. That the gospel works. You are proving that God is a God of reconciliation. 
This means when you welcome the person whose skin is a different shade than yours, you prove that gospel overcomes racial barriers. When you welcome the child and the elderly, you are proving the gospel is intergenerational. When you welcome the person with a disability, you prove the gospel is sufficient for every need. When you welcome the one who struggles with, with greed, theft, self-righteousness, drugs and alcohol, lying, gossip, same-sex attraction, narcissism, adulterers, you prove that the gospel can overcome all of this. For such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Jesus said, by this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How will the world know we're his disciples? By the love that we demonstrate for one another here in this place. The methodology of missions has always been church planting. To have that gospel witness displayed of our unity together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's the unity of the gospel and the work in the congregation that displays God's glory. Paul's prayer is that all the believers in Rome would welcome one another no matter their past, their their hang-ups, or their ethnicity. And Satan wants to divide us over other things, doesn't he? Things like denominational values and Bible translations and what we wear to church and politics or or what we think are important to our own rights, like whether or not we wear masks or take vaccines or our stance on a particular justice issue. I'm not saying those things aren't important. They are. But he wants us to oversize, Satan that is, he wants us to emphasize those things rather than the gospel. He wants us to be distracted from keeping the gospel the main thing in our lives. That way, we're going to keep a list of ideals that we need to check off that's not related to orthodoxy before we welcome others among us. And Paul prays for the endurance of the Roman church to keep on loving despite our differences, to keep on seeking to unify under the gospel banner. And we need that encouragement. We need that endurance as well. But after the prayer, Paul returns to his themes of Jesus and the promises in Scripture. Paul's going to make a significant point here that's a thread throughout the entire letter. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Jew and Gentile alike. And this has been God's plan all along from the beginning. So he says here in verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and... Circle that and right there. It's an important one. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Jesus entered to his creation to fulfill the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is the Greek word day that can be translated also as even so or moreover. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Both together. Both receive salvation through the same gospel. 
Paul quotes multiple verses from the Old Testament proving this. 2 Samuel 22:50. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again, it is said, Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Psalm 117, verse 1. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says in Isaiah 11:1, 1, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. The surety of salvation has come for Jew and Gentile alike. Jesus Christ has saved us from our sins. The sacrifice of the Son of God was more than sufficient. Therefore, we have hope, a sure hope based upon a sure thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. And once again, Paul can't help himself. He has to burst out into another prayer. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing this so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So Paul has had the example of Jesus entering into this sin-sick world. He, he has the confirmation of Scripture that this worldwide gospel advancement is God's revealed plan and, and he knows the unifying effect of the church that when that happens it proclaims God's glory. So now he declares to the Roman church, this group of people that he's never met, though he knows a few individual members of their congregation, that he personally must go and tell others about what Christ has done. It's his calling. One thing to note that while on mission, it's not necessarily that Paul wants to bypass Rome, but he must take the gospel to the unreached places. Paul is convinced the Roman church has what it needs. It has the gospel. It has regenerated members that will love one another. So it's not a priority for him to visit it. He writes here, verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of a reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Paul needed to write them to remind them of what they already knew. The gospel is their salvation, their justification, their foundation for relationship, as well as their mission. He needed to go back to that, especially knowing how difficult it is to unify Jew and Gentile believers. In a world of distractions, it's easy to be lured away and lose focus of the main thing, especially when you're dealing with a species like us that's just naturally selfish. And he wants to make sure that they know that his motives are pure in this. He doesn't correct them to make much of himself because Christ is the initiator of all this. And his words here are very insightful. The first thing he notes is that it was his desire to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Verse 18, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Obedience to what? Certainly not the Jewish law. No, Paul is emulating the Great Commission here. Remember, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the name of the Son and the name of the Holy Spirit. And it says in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. These are the commands of Christ, and he, Paul wants them to obey them, both in word and in deed. Verse 10, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, 
Paul will only proclaim what Christ has done and by this, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? So that from Jerusalem and all the way to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And where does he want to do that at? Verse 20, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been made, lest I build on someone's foundation. And here he quotes Isaiah 52, 15, which we read earlier in the service. But as it's written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul testified that it was the example of Jesus and the promises of Scripture that motivated him to go to the unreached places. He has seen for himself that the gospel works. It is proof, and it's found in the unifying power of the church. And it should inspire us and be our hope as well. God ordained it, Jesus demonstrated it, and the Scriptures guarantee it. God promised he would bring salvation to the nations. Jesus fulfilled that. And Paul is demonstrating his faith that the Lord would bring about his purposes by going and telling those unreached nations. And yes, right now, folks, I'm going to be honest with you. The task seems overwhelming. Yes, our our culture makes it so much harder right now. This is why we need endurance and why we need encouragement. Our mission, though, cannot fail. It's already been told us in the scriptures. God never lies. God will reach the nations using his church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Do you believe it? Do you? Because I am convinced that the reason that the gospel is not out there like it should be is because of us. It's because of us. I think we, we get so bogged down in what's going on in our personal sphere that we forget this glorious gospel message that can save the nations. We've constantly got to cast that vision in front of us. So allow me to provide you with some, just some practical ways that you can support missions right now. I'll be very quick with these. These are ways that you can actually get involved right now. First, get educated about missions and missionaries. You need to understand what those terms are and how they should be used and the way that the scriptures use that. One of the ways I'm going to encourage you to do that, overwhelm Alex Carr next quarter because he's teaching missiology in Sunday school. I want to fill that fellowship hall up full of people wanting to know and understand about missions. Attend the missions banquet at the end of the year and come and hear about our missionaries that we support here at Providence. Hear their reports and understand how you can pray for them. I'd love for you to go and get online and look up the Joshua Project. The Joshua Project will name every unreached people group that's in the world right now and allow you to be able to pray specifically for those groups who have not yet had the gospel introduced into their culture. So get educated. Second, Financially support a missionary. Find someone that you can personally be engaged in. Someone that you have skin in the game with. Our brother Tim is an excellent example from last week. By the way, can I praise God for what you have done? 
Last week, Tim let you know that he's going to be going to all different areas in his nation that he's serving right now and that he needed transportation. You guys gave him $5,000 to help buy a car. That's a quarter of what he needs, but you gave him $5,000 on one Sunday. Invest in missions. Get involved. Find somebody specifically that you can be involved with. The third thing is if, if it's the unity of the gospel among God's people that becomes a visible witness that demonstrates how God transforms our lives, I'd like for you to consider church planning. You personally consider church planning. In the year or so ahead of us, we hope that we're going to be planting another church here, even in our own community. And as much as I pains me a little bit to know that I wouldn't see every one of you on Sunday morning if you choose to help partner with that particular church in that particular area. I, I would be rejoicing to know you were serving alongside to see the gospel planted in all areas of our community. That you would attend and you would participate and be a part of it. That would be a great joy to me because we are not here, and I'll say it over and over again, we are not here to build the kingdom of providence. We are here to share the gospel to people who are dying in their sins, and they need it all over the city. They need to hear it, and they need to see it through a gospel witness. And it's worth us separating a little bit and planting in different areas so that that can be maintained. This one's hard, this next one but I believe you're capable. Encourage your children to go. Encourage your children to go. Begin instilling them in their mind a mission culture. Help them to think and process their careers about maybe where they're going to go to school, where they're going to receive their education in a way that maybe God could use them to go out to the unreached places. And some of them may choose to go to another nation. But for eternal consequences, it's worth it. It's worth it. Number five, pray for our missionaries. If you haven't picked up one of our mission directories in the back on the missions table, pick one of those up. Find the individual names and their families and pray for them. You want to talk about people who are undergoing spiritual warfare right now. It is those people who are on these front lines. You pray for them. You pray for their, their children are listed. Their, their spouses are listed there. You pray for them by name. You pray for their marriages to remain strong. You pray that the children would not be rebellious, but they would learn to obey their parents in that regard. And you pray, pray, pray for their safety. You pray for their gospel witness. You pray that they will endure the persecution that is coming. We may not can go, but we can get on our knees right here and lift them up. And when you do that, I'm going to tell you the sixth thing I want you to do. I want you to encourage them. Each one of them have an email address at the bottom of them. They love to hear from the missions team. We contact them every month to find out what's going on in their lives, but they would love to hear from you. It would embolden them so much to know 
that some random person at Providence Baptist is letting them know, I'm praying for you right now. I'm lifting you up. My friend Nicole, she was at our missions meeting this past week, and she told me afterwards, she said, as someone who's been on the field, someone who has been in a dark place and serving overseas, she said, this is what missionaries crave, to know that someone cares. I care. It's not hard. Take five minutes out of your day, write a nice email, find your favorite Bible verse, send it to them, and say, I prayed this over you. You can do that. Seventh, this is a doozy. Live out the importance of the gospel in this place. If it's our unity in the gospel that is that visible demonstration of the power of God at work within us, then live it out here. Love one another. Welcome one another. Open up your homes to one another. Learn to get along despite our differences with one another. Let's show the example to the rest of the world that Christians can have reasonable conversations with one another and not Facebook arguments and Instagram arguments. Let's show them that we know how to dialogue because we truly love each other. Let's get together in such a way that when people look at us, they go, yeah, but he's like this and she's like this and yet they're like hanging out together and they call each other brother and sister and they really act like they're almost family with one another. Let them be blown away by that. Let them see that you care about one another's sin, that you want to build them up, that you want to encourage them to keep striving towards holiness, not to judge them, but to build them up. Let them see that happening among yourselves. Be the gospel in this place. And then live out the importance of the gospel in the community. Not just here on these grounds when we gather together, but also other places. Invite your neighbors into your home. Invite them to come and see your family and how they interact with one another. The person that irritates you the most at work, first pray for them. Pray for what we just talked about, endurance and encouragement. The person that irritates you, invite them into your home. Take them out to lunch. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I want you to get to gospel-oriented conversations. I want you to. So don't think I'm not saying that. But first, ask Christ to show you the compassion that he can have towards someone who is so different than himself. And to see them as a human being and as a person who is an image-bearer of God so that you can love them first and they don't just become a project that you can kind of check off your list to evangelize, but that you can really learn to love them. Because I'm convinced the problem that's not out there is because we're not out there. So get involved. Get involved in some of your community organizations. Coach soccer, coach basketball. Get involved in a book club. 
Be prepared that you're going to see things that are going to offend some of your sensibilities. But be an agent of grace in those moments. Show them that you love them. Serve them. Allow them to see that really what matters to you most is not their behavior, but the gospel. And love them. Just love them. Share the gospel with them. Be bold. They're not going to like it at first. We see the kind of reaction that Jesus got, don't we? But he won. He won. He prevailed. You can too, through the power of Jesus Christ. Join me in prayer. Lord, I forgive me, church. Why me? Why did you choose to reveal your grace to me? I am the first to champion and say I did not deserve it. I am the chief of sinners here. And too many times, Lord, Instead of saying, why me? Why did I receive grace? I'm saying, why me? Why have you tasked me with this? I'm busy. I'm busy with activity. And yet, you have very clearly, clearly through your word, told me to go and make disciples of all nations. Certainly that means the neighbor across the street from me as well. So, Lord, give us a heart here at Providence for souls. Let us see through the same eyes that your son Jesus saw and have compassion for others. Allow us, Lord, to constantly keep before us this vision of knowing, Lord, that you are calling a people to yourself. You are drawing a people to yourself. And the means by which you are doing so is through a proclamation of the gospel and a demonstration of it in our lives to show that we are transformed. And allow us, Lord, to truly love one another in this place, to be concerned for one another, and then to take it out beyond this place, Lord, where people can see that we truly, truly, truly care about the gospel. We truly desire to live lives that are worthy of you, not to earn your affections, but because you have shown and demonstrated your affections to us through your son, Jesus. So, Lord, we pray that as we leave here this morning, we will not be the same. 
pray, Lord, that you would just bring to mind all those souls that are perishing because they've never heard. So, Lord, we pray, strengthen us, encourage us, give us endurance, Lord, and give us joy that Paul just prayed for and peace in believing in the message of the gospel, believing that it's sufficient enough for salvation. Transform us, God, and allow us to declare your sovereign majesty over this entire world. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.